Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to tell you a story about visions of frog hearts dancing in the void. Ooh, do tell. Okay. So in 1936, the German-American pharmacologist and physician Otto Loewy and the English pharmacologist Henry Dale together won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine for their discoveries about how signals travel between nerve cells and then from nerve cells to organs in the body. Back then, this wasn't specifically known. Like how does the nervous system transmit information back and forth. People thought, you know, maybe maybe it's electrical. We discovered electricity at the time. What exactly is going on there? And specifically what they found is that chemicals were involved in sending these impulses back and forth in the nervous system. And in one famous experiment, Otto Loewy and some colleagues first slowed down the beating of a frog's heart by stimulating the vagus nerve connected to it. Now, that's a thing that they knew already at the time they could do. If you stimulate the vagus nerve, you can make the heartbeat decrease in rate. Then they took fluid from the slowed-down heart and perfused a second frog's heart with that fluid from the slow-beating first heart. Now, the second frog heart also slowed down, even though no nerves had been stimulated. And this provided evidence that some chemical property of the fluid from the first heart had effects on the nerve cells in the second heart, essentially that chemicals controlled nervous tissue behavior. And the chemical that slowed down the heartbeat was originally called Vegastoff. That's a good German name (laughs) for it. Um, But now we know it to be acetylcholine. And then in a related experiment, Lowy showed that you could speed up a frog heart with fluid from another heart whose accelerator nerve had been stimulated. So Lowy had hypothesized for many years that chemical transmission might have been the basis of the nervous system but had been unable to prove it. And then these experiments eventually proved pretty decisive in demonstrating the chemical nature of nerve cell communication, that there's some chemical property being traded back and forth. So where did Lowy get the idea for this breakthrough experiment? There is a very strange story about that. According to Lowy, in his own words, quote, The night before Easter Sunday of 1920, I awoke, turned on the light, and jotted down a few notes on a tiny slip of thin paper. Then I fell asleep again. It occurred to me at six o'clock in the morning that during the night I had written down something important, but I was unable to decipher the scrawl. The next night, at 3 o'clock, the idea returned. It was the design of an experiment to determine whether or not the hypothesis of chemical transmission that I had uttered 17 years ago was correct. I got up immediately, went to the laboratory, and performed a simple experiment on a frog heart according to the nocturnal design. Ooh, so we're talking about dream inspiration here. We're talking about the idea that the breakthrough, that dramatic twist in the researcher's story uh, comes from the world of dreams. Right. Now, all we have to go on here is Louis's own words, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, who, who knows whether the dream is, as he says it was, a direct imagistic inspiration for the experiment that would later prove pretty decisive in showing the chemical transmission of nerve impulses. But that's what he says. 
And he is not alone in telling a story like this about a breakthrough experiment, discovery, invention, artistic innovation. This is a very common type of story among people who are often characterized as geniuses, right? Yeah, you see this all the time. And and certainly just the idea of dream inspiration or something more supernatural, something more magical, communication through a dream such as from the divine. These tales go back throughout our, our various religions and uh, and mythologies. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I've always thought is kind of interesting about the idea of dream inspiration is that it is taken to be an inherently supernatural thing in these ancient stories, right? Mm-hmm. Like the gods visit you in a dream and they give you some kind of insight or they give you the solution to a problem, and it's just accepted that that is a supernatural deliverance that could not have been accessed by the person themselves. But what do our brains do? I mean, our brains think. Our brains figure things out. It does not actually seem all that uh, strange to me or in need of a supernatural explanation that the brain could be figuring things out and gaining insights during sleep. No, not at all. And we'll get into uh, some of the science behind this as we proceed. But I I think a couple of things are crucial here. So we talked about the the idea of the distinction between uh, religious uh, dreams of inspiration and these scientific dreams. But ultimately, the realm of sleep is a realm of mystery. And in olden days, uh, for the most part, uh, dreams were a realm of religious mystery. To a scientific uh, individual, then the, the, the dreams are still – dream is still a realm of mystery, but it is a realm of cognitive mystery, of scientific mystery. And, and verifiable discovery, right? Right, yeah. And so – in, in either realm, though, it seems natural that, that answers might arise from them. And when they do, they can fulfill a vital storytelling role because nobody wants to hear this exchange. Oh, that's a tremendous breakthrough, Dr. Brundle. How did you, uh, <laughs> how did you come across that breakthrough? You, you don't want the answer to be, well, uh, I worked really hard and I thought about it a lot and uh, eventually worked through the problem. No, you want to hear something like, well, I was, I was working really hard on the problem and I couldn't quite crack it and then – I had a dream or some variation of that. Or then I bumped my head while standing on the toilet to hang a clock. Uh, that would be the case of uh, Doctor, the fictional Dr. Emmett Brown in Back to the Future. Right. And that was when I saw it, the flux capacitor. Yeah. I think another variation on this is, oh, I, I didn't know how to work out this detail. So I went on a walk in nature mm-hmm. or I or – I, uh, took a, an hallucinogenic drug in Tibet. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the different answers, the sort of answers you often see thrown out there when creative minds, either artistic or scientific, are trying to crack something. You want there to be this dramatic t- turning point. Yeah, and and if we broaden it beyond dreams just to the idea of sudden unexpected realizations in the uh, pursuit of, say, scientific knowledge or experiment design or breakthroughs in math or anything mm-hmm. like that, there are even more examples of this. And we're going to talk about plenty of examples where people think that a dream or a, a uh, period of sleep gave them the answer to something or gave them a breakthrough. But I'm, I remember hearing the story that apparently Einstein, you know, he said he had to be careful shaving because suddenly I ideas would just leap into his mind while he was shaving. He had to be careful not to cut himself. I don't know if that story is true, but it is a story. It sounds great. Yeah, it does. And if your experience is anything like mine, I've never discovered anything on the scale of Einstein, but I feel like I – that rings true of the characteristics of my thoughts sometimes. Like I often don't know from where what feel like my best insights arise. They don't necessarily come from sitting down and concentrating real hard on a problem until you arrive at the solution. You're doing something else and then suddenly it just hits you 
as if out of the void. Yeah, an, an eureka moment does often feel like something from outside yourself. And therefore, I think it lends itself to these type of stories. Uh, like for my own part, my dreams don't really give me a lot of inspiration these days. They're, they're generally more uh, about uh, anxieties and petty fears or just, just petty stuff, mm-hmm. like petty day planning type, uh, type situations. But some of my best creative thinking either, of course, comes during like the act of writing when you have that uh, – uh, that, that that free flow mode of, uh, of of creative activity, or when I'm swimming laps, like when I when my perhaps when my my brain is uh, is forced to operate in a slightly different way, mm-hmm. uh, that's when I can suddenly start making connections that I am not making the the rest of my waking time. I often feel like the most creative I am any time ever is the time between when I wake up and when I get out of bed. Hmm. That's the, see, for me, that's my most disoriented time. I don't know where I am <laughs> or what I was working on. Uh-huh. All I know is that the cat is making a lot of noise, and I'm afraid that a banshee uh, has manifested in the house. So I guess we should talk about some more examples of these anecdotes, at least, where people claim to have made major breakthroughs or discoveries or solved problems in dreams or during periods of sleep. Uh, There's this great quote from John Steinbeck where he writes in his 1954 novel Sweet Thursday, quote, It is a common experience that a problem difficult at night is resolved in the morning after the committee of sleep has worked on it. Ah, yes. And uh, actually one of the authors and researchers we're going to talk about in this episode today, Deidre Barrett, who is a psychologist who works on dreams and and sleep creativity, uh, she took that phrase, the committee of sleep, and made it into a title of a book she wrote about uh, dreams and creativity. Now, we've talked about dreams and Stuff to Blow Your Mind quite a bit over the years. Again, it's this realm of mystery. We can't help but uh, study it and discuss it, Uh, how we interpret them, how we might manipulate them, and what they're actually for. And there is no consensus on the purpose of dreams. Uh, I I thought that we might uh, just play a a clip from a previous interview that we conducted with Dr. Moran Cerf. Uh, He talked to us in our episode, The Nine Dream Worlds of Frederick Van Eden. Uh, And and this is his response to to my question, is there a consensus on the purpose of dreams? Uh, There isn't. There are like five different theories that try to explain what dreams are for. And they range from uh, there for nothing to they're the most important things that our brain can do. So here's like the kind of layout of those. One of the theories says that dreams are basically our brain's way of defragmenting the hard drive. You kind of overnight, you have to choose which memories to erase, which ones to keep, and your brain sorts them out. And because you see the visuals, if you want, of those memories passing by, you create a narrative of that, and this is what you call a dream. This is a theory that says that they don't really mean much. It's just that they're kind of an artifact of our brain doing things. That's on the one extreme. On the other extreme, there's a theory that our brain uh, is essentially looking and fishing inside at things that we suppressed during the day. This is the Freudian theory. It said we're kind of bury stuff deep inside that we want to not deal with and then at night because our guards are down or because our brain speaks without anyone suppressing things we get exposed to things that kind of come up from from our psyche a third one that's really popular right now that i'm uh, supporting in many ways is one where the brain is uh, using the dream to simulate futures for us and kind of live through them in the ultimate visual reality so we would actually know when we wake up if we should do it or not. So the idea is that you're debating whether to marry her and move to Alabama 
or break up and decide to start a company in San Francisco, and you really don't know what to do. So overnight, your brain plays both movies of you moving to Alabama with her and you starting a company in San Francisco. And because it's such a cool virtual reality, where the brain really doesn't know that it's not really going to the experience, you filter all of this movie through your values and emotions. And when you wake up, even though the memory itself is lost and you have no recollection of the dream, what survives is the feeling towards those choices. So when you wake up, you kind of have a better answer to what you should do. So those are three theories. There's two more uh, along the same lines, but they kind of fall into those buckets. They mean nothing, but they're just our brain's way of working. They mean a lot because they're our brain's way of reflecting things that we ourselves suppress, and they are our brain's way of simulating futures that we didn't experience yet in an ultimate virtual reality device that's so amazing that we are fooled by it ourselves, thinking that we are the character in this movie, and then waking up and knowing what to do. Now, some have speculated that dreams are tied to the brain's crunching of waking world problems. So the idea of solving problems in our dreams, that just seems to fit, right? But it also fits our, these much older ideas of dreams as prophecy or communication with the divine. And, and you can see the danger there. The idea of inspiration in dreams is just so romantically captivating. Uh, even as, if one is above outright lying about dream inspiration to improve their storytelling, it's still rather easy to manipulate our memories of dreams. Oh. Oh, yeah. You, I bet you've had this experience where you start trying to explain a dream you just had mm-hmm. and suddenly you can't tell if what you're saying about your memory of the dream is really what you dreamed or if you're just making it up now. It feels very blurry, the line between the two. So, yeah, maybe you didn't see the answer in a dream. Maybe the dream just contained fragments of the problem, but it makes for a better story. Though then again, if it contained fragments of the problem that led you to the answer, is that fundamentally all that different from seeing the answer in the dream. That's true. That's true. And if you go with any of these interpretations where dreams are important, where they are uh, – there's they're, they're something more than just uh, – uh, you know, steam uh, being released from the, from the cognitive engine, uh, then it makes sense that, that they would play a role. Now, we mentioned that there were a bunch of anecdotes throughout history of people claiming that dreams gave them some kind of creative breakthrough in solving a problem or in, in uh, doing, doing something creative and original. Uh, l- let's talk about a few of them. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, we're not going to run through all of them, but uh, we'll run through a few notable <laughs> ones here. And all of them. <laughs> all of them. All dreams that have ever occurred will be cataloged for you now. Uh, no, th- these are just a few uh, that pop up uh, from time to time and, are, and in many cases are often cited. Mm-hmm. So starting with some artists, uh, Salvador Dali. Uh, he attributed the persistence of memory to dream inspiration. And That's certain, not hard to imagine. Yeah, there's a, there's a dreamlike quality, uh, an overt dreamlike quality to his work. Also, I think Dolly was a liar, so <laughs> yeah. who, who knows what he, if what he says about the inspiration of anything is true. That's true. His stories about the creation of his work are often, you can see them as just uh, extensions of the fantastic painting. Uh-huh. Paul McCartney claims the melody for Yesterday came to him in a dream. Sure. Uh, Stephen King, uh, of course, uh, had this life-threatening accident in 1999, and he experienced vivid dreams in recovery, and he claims that a lot of uh, dream catcher came Mm. from those dreams. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Is that – I've never read that book. I think I've tried to watch the movie. Is the book more interesting than the movie? I haven't either seen nor read it uh, because there was kind of a negative buzz about both of them. There's some – yeah. I've always been – 
fascinated with the idea. It's not, I need to read it or see it. I need to commit to one or the other because I love the concept. I remember extended sequences of people defecating alien life forms. See, there you go. That sounds great. <laughs> um, uh, also, you have some uh, some athletic uh, creative types uh, in the uh, in the mix here. <laughs> Golfer Jack Nicholas claims uh, that he improved his golf golf game based on a dream in which he saw a new way to grasp his club. Okay, yeah, who knows if that's true? But all right. Uh, William Blake uh, would attribute to some of his ideas to dream visitations of his dead brother. We, of course, also have to look to Coleridge's uh, opium-induced dreams. Oh, yeah, the poem Kubla Khan, right, mm-hmm. was supposedly inspired by a dream or even – did he even say it was composed in the dream? He may have. It, uh, I remember uh, some of this also factors into Confessions of an English Opium Eater mm-hmm. as well. Um, also, you have Robert Louis Stevenson who uh, claims to have dreamt two scenes from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, but these are all artists and creative types, right? Yes. Well, maybe putting – who knows if Jack Nicholas counts there. But he, he is an artist of the, the green. It's harder to see uh, – it's harder to see what's all that unusual about dreams inspiring artists and musicians and stuff because in a way there's no wrong answer in art, right? right? So what's really interesting is when you get like an experiment design or something in science that is either valid or not or ha- or actually has a right answer or not. Yeah, so we're going to get into some of the scientific uh, examples. The, this first one though kind of I guess straddles the realm uh, here between uh, – uh, the purely artistic and the purely scientific, because you had uh, scholar uh, Hermann Hilprecht, who lived 1859 through 1925, and he reported that he dreamed an Assyrian priest came to him and revealed the accurate translation of the stone of Nebuchadnezzar, hmm. which that just sounds amazing. Well, I know she wasn't Assyrian, but I, I, I want to hear the dream where Inheduanna comes and composes <laughs> some wrathful poetry about Inanna. Yeah, well, it makes for a nice footnote, too, uh-huh. when you have visitations like this. Uh, and that's something to keep in mind as we roll through a number of these. You have individuals making scientific break, uh, breakthroughs, and they don't necessarily – like a lot of our accounts of the dream inspiration are not coming directly from that individual or they're coming years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, it varies from case to case uh, because I guess ultimately it's not the kind of thing you would necessarily put into your scientific paper and say, and then I had a dream and this was the uh, – uh, the result. Well, a classic example of the scientific inspiration from a dream, uh, apart from Otto Loewi, was also uh, Dmitry Mendeleev, right? Yes, who of course lived 1834 through 1907, the Russian chemist who gave us the periodic table. The story goes that he saw a complete periodic table in a dream. Hmm. Um, and maybe I've just been thinking too much about Ghostbusters, but I, I, I want to imagine what it would have been like if Mendeleev had had uh, been forced to choose the form of Gozer. Would Gozer <laughs> have taken on the form of the periodic table? What's the atomic number of Gozer? <laughs> now, as G.W. Baylor points out, there are some problems with this story. So we have no dream journal to go off here. We just have a, a colleague's secondhand account. And it seems like he'd already crafted the periodic table before the alleged dream took place and merely saw an improved version of it in his dreams, uh, a version of the story that sounds maybe a lot more sensible but uh, and, and maybe more in line with some of these other stories. Either way, you can still call that dream inspiration. You know, if you're, 
if the, the thing you're trying to create either appears to you wholesale in the dream based on your work and experience mm-hmm. or some updated version, some twist on it appears in your dream. Now, since we're in the realm of chemistry, we should go to maybe the single most often cited example of dream inspiration in science, which is August Kekulé. Yes, Kekulé lived 1829 through 1896. Uh, and he dreamt of whirling snakes and allegedly discovered the ring shape of the benzene molecule by seeing an Ouroboros in his dream. Now, Ouroboros, of course, is the, the serpent consuming its own tail. One thing to keep in mind, though, is this account didn't emerge till 28 years later. So that's more than enough time, obviously, for memory to have been altered or the story to have been maybe a little embellished, uh, dramatized. But uh, it's, it's still one of the examples that you see cited uh, time after time for dream inspiration in science. Well, anything we can get smaller than a benzene molecule? Oh, well, we can move on to the work of uh, Niels Bohr, who we've talked about recently, uh, 1885 good. through 1962. That's right. So he claimed to have developed his model of the atom based on a dream he had in which he sat on the sun and the planets moved around him on tiny cords. Now that's cosmic terror. Up next uh, on our list of considerations here, there's J.B. Parkinson who lived 1912 through 1991. Uh, He uh, invented computer-controlled anti-aircraft guns. And this is an excerpt from his New York Times obit. Mr. Parkinson who was a member of the technical staff of Bell Laboratories in New York in 1940, had a dream that a a device he designed to guide a marking stylus could be used to control anti-aircraft guns. He developed a prototype, and the Western Electric Company began mass-producing it. His achievements won him a presidential award and a Franklin Institute medal. Okay, well, whether or not you like the fact that it was a weapon, even weapons take creativity to produce true. And, and it was a defensive weapon. We can say that, an anti-aircraft gun hmm. for the most part. Okay. Up next, we have sewing machine inventor and handsome werewolf, uh, Elias Howe. <laughs> uh, I recommend everyone look up a picture of, uh, of old Elias here because uh, he was something else. Like, I've never seen somebody sport one of those uh, kind of a neck beard yeah. so glamorously. It's the beard without the mustache, but it looks – it's very fluffy and luxurious. It looks like he's been brushing it a lot. Yeah, it's – there's this seam, seamless flow from his uh, his thick head of hair into this beard. Uh, it, it, I just get a very handsome werewolf vibe off of him. They should have cast him in that Wolfman remake. Yeah. Well, uh, he allegedly dreamt he was building a sewing machine for a savage king in a strange country. (laughs) I love that. So there's not a lot to back this up, but the story appeared in a later family history. Here's a quote. He thought the king gave him 24 hours in which to complete the machine and make it so. If not finished in that time, death was to be the punishment. How worked and worked and puzzled. And finally gave it up. Then he thought he was taken out to be executed. He noticed that the warriors carried spears that were pierced near the head. Instantly came the solution of the difficulty. And while the inventor was be- was begging for time, he awoke. It was four o'clock in the morning. He jumped out of bed, ran to his workshop, and by nine, a needle with an eye at the point had been rudely modeled. After that, it was easy. That is the true story of an important incident in the invention of the sewing machine. 
That's interesting. I mean, yeah. again, who knows if it's true, but assuming it is true, if you just play with that for a second, okay, say that story is true. It's interesting the way in which these revelations seem to be arriving, you know, not necessarily through literal ideas, mm-hmm. right? Like seeing a snake eating its tail or seeing the spear with the hole at the tip of the spear. They're not through literal understandings of, say, a dream about trying to design a sewing machine and coming up with the idea of a needle with a hole at its tip. But there's some kind of like image association thing. They're visual type dreams where you see an association between unrelated things. Yeah, there's almost a sense of, you know, someone like, oh, spending his uh, his day trying to crack this problem with uh, the left brain. And then at night, it's kind of this, uh, hey, right brain, what have you got? Anything? Anything like just tumbling around you want to throw at it? Uh, maybe not to Well, I wonder to what degree the hemispheric division does play into that. But I I think some version of that will come through in some of the Mm -hmm. research we're going to talk about later. Right. I I don't want to imply that people are dolphins and have unihemispheric sleep. (laughs) Though that would be an entirely different scenario to try to imagine how that would play into problem solving. Okay, and finally, uh, we're going to mention Albert Einstein one last time because uh, he, uh, in addition to his – his crazy sparks of razor uh, fl- flinging uh, um, uh, eureka moments. He once said that his entire career was an ex- was an extended meditation on a slaying dream he had as a child, leading him to contemplate the speed of light. Now that's slaying with an e i g h, not like a dragon slaying. Yeah, not dream. not uh, running around with the razor blade. But no, like moving quickly through the snow in uh, in, a, in a vehicle of sorts, that, that you can see how that would lead to, say, contemplations about what would happen if you were trying to catch up with a beam of light. Yeah. Now, again, we've tried to display enough skepticism about these anecdotal accounts because, as we've said, a lot of times they're, they're self-reported or they're reported much later. I mean, who knows if and to what extent they're exactly correct in saying where these ideas came from. But I do feel like there's an emerging theme that there does appear to be some link between creativity and sleep or dreams. At least there appears to be. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I want to stress here is that creativity – the the kind of creativity we're going to be talking about today is creativity, I think, as psychologists would tend to use the word, which means something like one's ability to use adaptive problem solving and not necessarily like how artistic or how unique you are, or other things we would usually think of when we use the word creative. In the psychological sense, creative means something like the ability to think in novel ways to achieve a goal. And this, of course, includes artistic creativity, but it's not limited to it. Right. It, it can very well include, uh, hey, what if I held the golf club like this instead of like that? Yeah. Yeah, it's novel thinking. So uh, it it basically, to use a cliche, means thinking outside the box to solve a problem, whether that problem is how should we picture the structure of an atom or how can I figure out why my lawnmower won't start or how should I tie up all the narrative threads in my novel. In each case, it's requiring novel thinking. It's creativity. But okay, anecdotes, of course, as we all know, can be cheap. Is there like any evidence from controlled research that shows a relationship between sleep, dreams, and creativity, or are these just sort of cute cherry-picked stories? I think we should address that after we come back from a break. All right, we're back. So yeah, we've talked about these examples and how they might tie into creativity, but what happens when we start looking to, uh, to actual control research for answers? That's a great question. So to be clear, research has tended to show that sleep has several roles 
in improving and maintaining areas of brain function. Specifically, I think there's a lot of research on sleep and memory. Like studies have indicated that REM sleep may play a role in memory consolidation, improving the memory of things learned throughout the day and even things like emotional associations with those memories. But actually, yes, there is also controlled research on sleep and creativity. Actually, there's too much of it to cover here, so we're just going to have to discuss a few interesting highlights that came to our attention. In general, it seems that it has yielded some very interesting but sometimes contradictory findings. So to begin a smattering of recent studies, uh, one was by uh, C.O. Monahan and Ormerod called Sleep on It, But Only If It Is Difficult – <laughs> effects of sleep on problem solving in memory and cognition in 2013. So this took 27 male and 34 female students from La uh, Lancaster University, all native English speakers. Uh, these were the subjects and they were given a set of 30 problems from what's known as the remote associates test or the rat test. Okay. Though I guess it's only the rat test in the way that the ATM machine is a machine. <laughs> uh, the rat, we'll just, we'll just say. The rat is a common battery used to test people's creative potential using word association. Have you ever done a test like this, Robert? I haven't, but I have to say that sentence that you just uh, uh, said about the rat, that um, that feels like the most cut-up machine statement I've heard <laughs> uh, <laughs> heard in, in recent uh, in recent time. It's the opening of a William S. Burroughs novel. Yes. The rat is a common battery used to test creative potential. <laughs> uh, so here's how the rat works. I'm going to give you three words, and you tell me a fourth word that is related to all three of the original words. In my experience, these are funny because they can seem really difficult for a moment until you see the answer, either by figuring it out or by uh, or by just cheating and looking at it, at which point then it immediately feels embarrassingly obvious and you don't know why you couldn't figure it out for a minute. Uh, so a, a couple of examples. Robert, what's the fourth word associated with these three? Room, blood, salts. I'm going to go with slug. <laughs> slug room? Slug blood? Uh, it's just what came to mind. That's how this works, right? So it's supposed to be whatever pops into my head, or am I trying to no, determine a pattern? No, you're trying to solve it. Oh, okay. You're, well, that's different. Um, let's see. Room, blood, salts. Room, blood, salts. Room, blood, salts. I don't know. I'm still going with slugs, Joe. I don't know. <laughs> uh, bath. 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 Okay. Bathroom, bloodbath, bath salts. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they all relate to that word. Okay. Now I see how the, how this is working. Okay. okay so yeah, you, you had your training session. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to be subjected to more? Yes. Let's go. Okay. The these three words. What's the fourth word? Sea, home, stomach. Hmm. Sea, home, stomach. I mean, slug would work with all of these again <laughs> uh, if if I were pressed. Uh, but let's see. Sick. Oh, exactly. There you go. Seasick, homesick, sick to your stomach. Mm -hmm. okay. Slug sick, yes. Okay, I got a third third one for you. Car, swimming, queue. Oh, that's pool. Right, exactly. Carpool, swimming pool, pool queue. Okay, all right. So that's how this test works. And it's a pretty good, concise way of trying to test for creative potential thinking, right? Because you're, you're trying to get people to think laterally, right? There's no direct way to solve this. You have to kind of think by sideways association. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, the participants were given questions of this sort. And then after they were initially given the questions, they were, there was a delay. And the delay either included sleep or included no sleep or there was no delay. 
And participants then tried again to solve rat problems that they couldn't solve on their first attempt. And the group that had slept in between attempts solved a greater number of problems rated, quote, difficult than other groups. But there was no difference between groups uh, for the problems that were rated easy. So it looks like sleep did play some role in aiding creative problem solving, especially on harder than average problems that required this kind of sideways associative thinking. And I think that matches up with, with, with our experience, you know. I think we've all been in a situation where we've been studying for something uh, or studying up on something. And we reach kind of a breaking point. We go to bed. We hopefully get a full night's sleep. And then the next day, everything's a little clearer. Everything's a little more assembled as if the pieces did some sort of partial assembly on their own in the night. Yeah, totally. And there's another study I want to mention that is kind of similar in nature. So this one is called Sleep Promotes Analogical Transfer in Problem Solving. This was from Cognition in 2015. Uh, It has a couple of the same authors from the previous study and then some different authors. Uh, And they wanted to study if sleep actually had any effect on, quote, analogical problem solving. And this means using a known solution from one problem to solve a different but related problem. So basically to solve a similar type of problem. So what would be an example of analogical problem solving? Well, I've got one here. I'm going to start do two questions. Here's the first question. This is the sample question. How can a gardener plant four trees so that the trees are equidistant from one another? If you want to pause it and try to figure that out for a second, <laughs> be my guest. But you'll, you'll immediately run into problems if you're trying to map it out on a piece of paper, right? Because if you put them, say, in a square, in a square pattern, the ones at the corners are going to be farther away from each other than they are from the ones that are one side away from them, right? So how can you put four trees equidistant from, from one another? The answer is you put one of them on a hill, Oh. So if you're trying to picture this, three of the trees are in an equilateral triangle at the bottom of the hill, and then the fourth tree is at the middle of a hill in between them at such a height that it's the same distance from all of the trees below, all three of the trees below. So you've essentially made a triangular pyramid of trees, right? Yes. Okay. Or some sort of, uh, you know, an ancient pagan temple. I like that too. <laughs> that, that's good. Yeah, the one tree at the top of the hill, it conjures to mind like the, the sacred priest keeper of the tree, right? Yeah. Who you have to slay in order to become the new, the new priest. <laughs> that's slay with an A-Y, not Einstein's slay. Uh, but so once you've seen the solution to that problem, you're given another problem. Here's the analogical problem. Can you assemble six matches to form four equilateral triangles each side of which is equal to the length of one match. Again, if you want to try to pause and solve this for yourself, be our guest. Yes, run to your nearest restaurant uh, that has uh, complimentary matches. Uh, Start assembling them on the table. You're going to want to order a drink uh, (laughs) or some appetizer just so that you can have a seat to do this and then report back. Though given that we've just primed you with the last example, it might not take you very long because the solution is very similar. Right. Think not in 2D but in 3D. Exactly. So the answer follows a similar logical leap. If you keep lying the matches flat on the table, you're just never going to be be able to make four equilateral triangles with, with a side length of one match. The answer is to build into three dimensions, like you say, and make a tetrahedron. You make a triangular pyramid and then you've solved this, this brain teaser. So in the first experiment, experiment of this study, participants were shown a set of source problems to demonstrate general styles of solutions, like the trees and the hill example we gave. Then there was a 12-hour period which involved either sleeping or not sleeping. 
Then participants tried to solve problems related to the source problems they'd been exposed to but with different features, sort of like the second example with the matches. Then a second experiment controlled for time of day effects on results by testing in both the morning and the evening. And the authors found when controlling for other variables like drowsiness and time of day, sleep did still appear to somewhat improve analogical transfer. Uh, participants who slept were better at applying types of uh, outside-the-box reasoning that, that they had seen used before to new problems. And again, I feel like this lines up with our experiences. Yeah, though, in in the wild, sort of, when you've mm-hmm. had this experience of sleeping on a problem and then coming to a solution, you might wonder, like, which variables are at play, right? Right. You might just think, think oh, okay, I got some rest. Maybe getting some rest is the thing that did it. That's true. If you really wanted to, you could just cut dreams out of it entirely and go with one of those dream interpretations that relegates dreams to just mere steam from the machine. Epi- epiphenomenal dreams, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, the, the, what we're trying to look for here is a test showing that dreams specifically, or not necessarily dreams specifically, but sleep specifically, is doing something to help you solve the problem. And it's not just that, say, some time has passed in between and you've gotten some rest. You know, one thing we haven't mentioned in all of this is the the idea of book absorption, you know, the idea that – this is complete you know, nonsense, but you see it come up occasionally, the idea of someone could lay their head upon a book and sleep and in doing so absorb the data from the book. Uh, I did not know that anybody thought that would actually happen. <laughs> Do people think that actually happens? I think there may be like one account of someone claiming to have had that ability, but uh, yeah, it's it's not like they passed the the the, the Randy test with it or anything. Uh, the only way I could see that making a difference is if you've already read the book. Right. And then maybe by sleeping with your head on it, you would continually notice that you're uncomfortable as you're trying to go to sleep. And this would continually bring your mind back to the contents of the book. Yeah, maybe. yeah, that that would make sense. Or you're so wrapped up in the idea of dream absorption of the book mm-hmm. that you dream of the book. Maybe – and, you know, you're not drawing new information out of a book you have not read. But perhaps your brain kind of puts things together. Like it reminds me of the, the situation – I've mentioned this on the podcast before – and I imagine lots of you have experienced this, you're falling asleep and you're reading and you begin to read words and sentences and even whole pages that are not there. Uh-huh. And then you realize, oh, I just need to go to sleep because right. I'm, I'm experiencing hallucination. I'm dream reading. Yeah. yeah. Now, th- there's a bunch more research on this type of subject. Uh, for example, uh, I was just looking at one study in PLOS 1 in which uh, students who were trying to solve a puzzle video game level – did better after they'd had a nap as opposed to just waiting for an equivalent amount of time and not sleeping. Uh, so, But that was a small study. Another interesting one is the cognitive neuroscientist Aaron Wamsley, who has apparently performed research training people on solving a virtual maze. So there's – you get trained on a virtual maze and then there's a rest period involving no sleep – non-REM sleep or full REM sleep and only the participants who underwent REM sleep showed improved performance on the maze. Now, if you know anything about sleep, you know that, wait a minute, okay, the REM sleep is where the dreams happen. So this should bring us back to the question of, okay, we're showing like that sleep does appear to help people in solving problems one way or another, but do the dreams play any role? Is that what matters? Huh. You know, in the video games are an interesting example because I think of my own 
use of video games. Video games are not something I play first thing in the morning when I'm fresh. Right. These are things that I play um, toward the end of the day or perhaps uh, even late at night mm-hmm. when my brain is spent for the evening. So if, I'm, if I gain advantage over a, a puzzle within a video game the next day, it seems more likely that it is due to something that's happening in my dreams rather than just being fresh because, again, I'm probably mentally exhausted if I'm playing a video game. That's true, and also strikes me as a good use of your time. I mean, you don't want to be squandering your best creative <laughs> energy on video games. I don't. I mean, not to say that some 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 of those games are great, and you you no, no, would no, kind no. of want to be fresh for, but uh, it's just not how I currently live my life. No, I mean, my my opinion on video games is they are a great recreational relaxation activity, not mm-hmm. something that that I think of in terms of achievement. In right, unless you're being paid to participate in a study. <laughs> and then, then you can you know do whatever. But okay, we, we got to bring it back to dreams. Okay, so so th- do the dreams specifically play a role in creative problem solving? Now I think we should look at the work of a psychologist named Deidre Barrett. We mentioned her earlier in the episode, uh, but she's a psychologist who, at various points, she'd been on faculty at Suffolk University, at Harvard Medical School. I believe she runs a private clinical practice in Cambridge, and uh, a lot of her work has been on the study of dreams. So let's talk a little bit about Barrett's ideas. So Barrett has a TED Talk from 2011 where she kind of summarizes some of her thinking about dreams and dream research. Uh, So she mentions three big questions. First, why is there any content to our nighttime sleep? Second, why is that content so different from our waking thinking? Why is it bizarre? You know, why is dreamlike even a thing? Mm -hmm. And then finally, do dreams have a function? And if so, what? And Barrett seems to believe that dreams are basically just thinking in a different biochemical state. Quote, the demands of our bodies during sleep make certain areas of our brains less active. Uh, So you can imagine that certain areas of the brain are getting different kinds of uh, energy or oxygen or blood flow. But we keep thinking about the same kinds of concerns that preoccupy us when we're awake. And in this altered biochemical state, the sleeping brain approaches these concerns using very different systems and modes than we would use while we're awake. So despite how bizarre these modes of thinking can feel in the moment in the dream, it, it is very odd. Barrett thinks these different perspectives provided by the dreaming mind can be helpful to problem solving. So under this model, by dreaming about the problems that concern us while we're awake, it, it's almost like we're having two different people working in tandem on solving the problem, right? And what are these two people like? What are the different strengths they bring? So human sleep occurs in 90-minute cycles, each one containing a period of what's known as rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, which we've mentioned. And each of these REM periods contains dreaming. We don't tend to remember all of our dream cycles in the morning, but if you wake people up after each REM period, they'll be able to describe five dreams in a night. And uh, PET scans show that parts of the brain associated with visual imagery, movement, and emotion are active, often even more active than when we're awake. Meanwhile, frontal areas associated with abstract thinking, planning, and especially like uh, uh, limitations on behavior and self-censorship, these areas of the brain are suppressed. So you've got two different people working on the problem. The waking brain can work on it in a more controlled, focused, abstract, and planned way. 
While the dreaming brain can sort of play with the problem in an experimental, unfocused, visual, uncensored, associative way, uh, and one of the, the ways this is often expressed is how do you solve prob- uh, hard problems? You often have to solve them by approaching them in a way that seems wrong at first, mm-hmm. right? But the prefrontal part of the brain that's suppressed during REM sleep is the part of the brain that tells you, no, 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 don't think like that. That's wrong. Hmm. Like the part of your your brain that says, well, if they're fighting over this baby, I'll, I'll just cut it in half, <laughs> which is a, a – Well, bar- no. The prefrontal part would tell you that's not an option. <laughs> so you, you'd have to suppress that part of the mm-hmm. brain. You, you, King Solomon there is using dream logic. Yeah. But, and it ends up solving the problem. Spoiler for uh, the, the Old Testament. But uh, the, the, the two mothers stop fighting over the child because the one who uh, – uh, who cares the most about the child, says, wait, don't cut the kid in half. It's sort of a social brain teaser, yeah. right? How do you get these people fighting over who who's the real mother of the baby to reveal their identities? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so so that that's a way of outside-the-box thinking that you might say is uh, could be helped by REM sleep and dreaming. Uh, so you've got this one team member that's very organized and logical, and the other team member is weird and creative and visual, and they sort of hand the problem off back and forth. That's an interesting possibility. So we looked at a, a 1993 paper uh, by Barrett, The Committee of Sleep, A Study of Dream Incubation for Problem Solving. Now, she would later go on to write a book called The Committee of Sleep. But uh, yeah, th- this was an earlier piece of research that she did. Right. So she points out that most accounts of solving problems or producing creative products during sleep uh, are of rim-like sl- uh, dreams or uh, hypnagogic imagery. Uh, again, that's the netherworld between wakefulness and sleep. Now, I wanted to mention that she brings up – she sort of reviews briefly some existing literature at mm-hmm. the time of the research on uh, on the connection between dreams and problem solving. So just to mention a few of the papers that go into the, the background of her research here. One is uh, Cartwright in 1974 who gave subjects three types of problems, crossword puzzles, word association tests, maybe kind of like the rat, mm-hmm. uh, and story completion. And subjects either got a sleep period with at least one REM cycle or an equal amount of waking time. And in this study, there was no difference found between sleepers and non-sleepers in terms of problem-solved correctly in the crossword puzzles or the word association test. So that's that's a kind of different result, right? We're getting some contradiction there, no difference there. Also, sleepers apparently wrote story completions with more negative endings. Huh. Don't know what that's about. Uh, nobody tried to figure out whether the story completions were, were better in one group than another. A big one in the field is uh, Dement in 1974, which took 500 undergraduate students and they got three brain teasers and they were asked to read the brain teasers before going to bed. Then they were asked to record whether solutions to the brain teasers appeared in dreams. And this is from Barrett's uh, summary, quote, of 1,148 attempts at solving problems, 87 dreams address the problem without finding a solution. Seven students reported dreams which solved the problem and a few others had dreams which seemed to hint at a solution without the waking subject catching the hint. Now, that's interesting. How would that work? Well, she gives an example. It would be in the problem, quote, H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O. What one word does this sequence represent? The subject reported, I had several dreams, all of which had water somewhere, and described the water in each dream. However, his guess at the solution to the problem was alphabet, rather than water, which is H2O, the solution to the brain teaser. It's the alphabet H2O. And I was also thinking the next letter is P, 
And if you think about water too much, uh, you will yeah, pee, you in the bed. pee in the bed. Yeah. It all makes sense. I don't know if there's any science behind that. <laughs> uh, now, of course, that could be a, easily be a coincidence, but you do have to wonder. That's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, anyway, so so that's some of the background leading into the research that she performed in this study. Yeah, particularly uh, she conducted an experiment. She got uh, 76 college students uh, together. That it consisted of 47 women, 29 men, everybody ages 19 through 24. So the modal age was 21. Mm-hmm. They were asked to incubate dreams addressing problems as a homework assignment in a class on dreams. So they were instructed to select a problem of personal uh, relevance with, with a recognizable solution. So no wicked problems, you know, like something, right. something that can be tackled. Come up with a solution to the nuclear standoff. Yeah. <laughs> so they were asked to write out their problem in a simple fashion – And immediately prior to the first night of dream incubation, they had uh, to attend a lecture summarizing the literature on problem solving in dreams. So they're getting, you know, nice and primed on uh, on a number of the concepts that we've talked about already. Mm -hmm. They did this nightly for one week or until they had a dream which they felt solved the problem. They recorded all of their dreams during this time and they they noted which ones were A – uh, on topic on the topic of the problem, including addressing any aspect of the problem or any attempted solution of it, and then also B of these ones they believed contained a satisfactory solution to the problem, and then these were judged by uh, I think two judges. Mm-hmm. Now, approximately half of the subjects recalled a dream which they felt was related to the problem. And uh, it's worth pointing out that 70% of these believe their dream contained a solution to the problem. Now, most of the the individuals here selected a personal problem, something related to relationship dilemmas or educational, vocational desires. And again, we have to remember that these are a bunch of 21-year-olds for the most part. Well, I mean, that's not surprising to me because dreams very often – I mean, one thing you see when you look at did your dream address the solution to this brain teaser you'd been trying to Mm -hmm. solve – I don't think people dream about stuff like that very often. People tend more often to dream about stuff of strong personal importance, which tends to have to do with like work life and relationships with people and family and friends. Yeah, and I mean arguably too, if it's something seemingly more fantastic like I was being chased by the hounds of hell, well, those hounds of hell just represent all the – other crap in your life that is not literally a hound of hell. Yeah, so this might actually be a better approach than seeing did your dream literally address the contents of a brain teaser because we might just not be primed to dream about things like brain teasers if our dreams are somehow adaptive, if they do address problems. You'd think those problems would be the kinds of problems humans normally face, not like written abstract puzzles. And indeed, in this experiment, personal problems were much more likely to be viewed as solved by the dreamer than ones of an academic nature. Because again, most of the individuals in this study chose personal problems and a few chose academic. I want to give one example of the type of problem that that was uh, given in this study. Uh, So this is a quote from a supposedly solved problem. Quote, I recently moved from one apartment to a smaller one. Every way I try to arrange my bedroom furniture in the new room looks crowded. I've been trying to decide if there is a better way or if I have to get rid of something. Dream. I come home and all the boxes are unpacked and the pictures hung. Everything looks real nice. The little chest of drawers is in the living room up against a wall like a sideboard and it blends right in there. I'm puzzled because I didn't remember doing this. I can't figure out if I move the chest and unpacked or if someone else has but I like it. Awake. 
The chest actually fit there real well when I tried it, so I left it there. <laughs> I'm glad someone else has dreams as boring as mine. Uh, I mean, that's boring, but that does actually represent a solution. I mean, it yeah. sounds like the kind of thing that if you to, were to imagine that your your dreams are kind of like thinking about things that are on your mind, how to arrange the stuff in your apartment might well be one of those problems. So this is Barrett's conclusion from the paper. Quote, perhaps the committee of sleep may have workers outside of RIM, and the spokesperson role of the dream may be more than a metaphor. Even more likely, given what is known about uh, cortical activation, the problem may get solved by some part of the waking mind and communicated to consciousness only in the dream state. In summary, there remain many questions about the mechanism of problem solving in dreams and about the quality of these solutions compared with waking ones. It is clear, however, that dream-interested persons incubating problems can often dream what they feel to be solutions of which they are not consciously aware and that such dreams can provide them considerable personal satisfaction. All right, we're going to take one more break. When we come back, we'll continue to discuss uh, problem-solving during dreams. All right, we're back. Now, we've been talking about how sleep apparently aids in creative problem-solving and apparently how dreams themselves could play some role in that. But what if dreams and REM sleep play a role in problem-solving even if they don't necessarily consciously provide you with solutions to problems. This is something I was often thinking about when looking at this research. Like people were looking for examples of where you were able to solve a brain teaser because you had a dream about the brain teaser and the content of the dream specifically told you what to do. I, I think a lot of times it might be very different. Like a dream might help you solve problems not because it shows you the solution to the problem because, but because it unconsciously primes you to solve the problem later when you're awake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just kind of turns everything thing on its head potentially and then you have that uh, sort of mirror vision of everything still knocking around your memory when you tackle the problem anew. Yeah, so I, I think that's a possibility to consider as well. There's an interesting research paper that just came out this year, uh, just in 2018 and appeared in Trends in Cognitive Sciences by the Cardiff University neuroscientist Penelope Lewis, the cognitive scientist Gunther Noblich, and the UCLA neuroscientist Gina Poe. And they have an interesting new hypothesis about why the brain might be aided in problem solving by sleep and dreaming. And they point out that many lines of evidence, of course, as we've been talking about, show that sleep is important for creativity. But the question is, which part of sleep? Is it the REM sleep? Is it the non-REM sleep? How does sleep encourage creative approaches to behavior? And is one stage of sleep more important than another stage of sleep? So I'll just try to give you the, the very basics of their theory. Their new theory is that Studies seem to show that the brain replays memories from the day in non-REM sleep and that through this process, the brain creates gist information. Essentially, by replaying memories of what happened, it pulls out sort of overarching rules that, quote, define a set of related memories. So this, is, this might be how your brain sort of forms categories of things and themes of memories, hmm. that when you're sleeping, before you go into your dream state, when you're in this non-REM sleep state, often known as a slow-wave sleep, you are experiencing replaying of memories and the brain is making rules based on those memories. 
then in the following periods of REM sleep, the brain essentially plays with this existing cortically coded knowledge uh, and that the that you've got these high levels of excitation and the uncensored, unbridled capability for connections between things. And this quote provides an ideal setting for the formation of novel, unexpected connections. They write, quote, the synergistic interleaving of REM and non-REM sleep may promote complex analogical problem solving. So again, this is kind of like the idea of you have two consultants yes. who are weighing in on the problem. Yeah, exactly. So in, in summary, the slow wave sleep, the non-REM sleep forms concepts and rules out of our daily memories. And then REM sleep, the dreaming part of sleep, plays around by trying to get connections between them, sort of trying out different weird things in an uncensored, uncontrolled way. And this cycle repeatedly happens throughout the night in roughly 90-minute periods, as we mentioned earlier. So the implication is that if you get more sleep, your brain has more opportunities to form connections and solve problems in strange and unexpected ways. In your waking life, of course, this can translate into creativity and out-of-the-box thinking. Now, Penelope Lewis agrees that uh, the model she and her co-authors have constructed here is probably not exactly correct yet, but thinks it's sort of in the right direction of forming a final explanation of how sleep aids in creativity. Uh, and there was a good article I read in The Atlantic by Ed Yong that discussed this new research and quoted at least one other researcher in the field who, who agrees it might not be totally there yet, but it's a step in the right direction. Now, as we begin our final approach here towards uh, closing out the episode, uh, I thought we should maybe get into a little uh, futurism and sci-fi. All right, man. Let's do it. In a previous episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, titled uh, Conjoined Dreamers, uh, we discussed this uh, really interesting work of, um, of futurism that came out. It was, uh, it, it was commissioned by Travel Lodge. <laughs> what? Yeah, in 2011, uh, they got noted futurist Dr. Ian Pearson to weigh in on where hotel te technology is going and indeed what the experience of checking into a hotel might consist of in the year 2035. More vivid hotel nightmares. <laughs> Wait, Robert, do you get hotel nightmares? I have certainly experienced this before because this is a known situation. Like the first night you spend in a new location, such as a hotel, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have trouble sleeping. You're going to have a lot more. I believe it's the default mode network that mm -hmm. uh, is more active. Yeah, it's not just that uh, huge surplus of pillows that, that makes you dream bad. It's, <laughs> it's being in an unfamiliar place. Oh, man, all those cool pillows. It's, it's an attractive idea, but it's, yeah. It's too, too many pillows on hotel beds. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? Why the, do they need yes. that many pillows? Yes, there are, there are way too many. But they go on the floor, so when you have that, that nightmare the first night, you fall out onto pillows. <laughs> so uh, following a six-month study, uh, Pearson laid out his vision of the future, and, and it's, it's pretty – Tremendous. You can you can look this uh, this travelodge study up. It's available online. But you know, he said that any surface or fabric in the hotel room uh, might be electronically enhanced to make you your stay better. Uh, they may emit a particular nostalgic scent, serve as a virtual display. It's just this sci-fi vision, really, of what a hotel room could be. Uh, but what do we do in the hotel room? Well, obviously, we sleep and we dream. So Pearson's predictions play a, a great deal with the idea of not only virtual reality and even virtual 
sex, but technologically augmented dream states. Whoa. He wrote, quote, the benefits of sleep time learning will be more widely known in 2035. We will be able to use the dream management system as our own external coach, delivering training programs or giving sleepers the opportunity to learn and practice useful life skills whilst asleep. Sleepers will be able to learn a new language whilst falling asleep or study towards a qualification or learn a new skill. Yeah, okay. I mean, I I'm not sure I am confident that all of that is true, but that's it's interesting to entertain as a possibility. Now, another interesting treatment of this comes from um, a 1999 novel by sci-fi author Peter Watts. Oh, yeah. And this is the novel Starfish that I've, I've already referenced on the show before. And it, Watts really loads his books with a lot of, uh, of scientific material. Uh, uh, yeah, w- Watts, I think, has some of the best, most interesting reads on the implications of future technology and sort of transhuman mm-hmm. consciousness states of, of pretty much anybody. Yeah, and, and again, he... he Puts a lot of ideas into his books, so that's why the book has come up yet again. Uh, but I'm just going to read a, a quick paragraph from it to give you a taste of how he uses kind of this kind of dream uh, augmentation technology in the novel. Quote, a lot of it happened while he was sleeping. Every night they'd give him an injection to help him learn, Scanlon said. Afterwards, a machine beside his bed would feed him dreams. He could never exactly remember them, but something must have stuck, because every morning he'd sit at the console with his tutor, a real person, though, not a program, and all the text and diagrams she showed him would be strangely familiar, like he'd known it all years ago and had just forgotten. Now he remembered everything. I love how Watts calibrates this. So you have the you have the, the dream technology, but you also have a pharmaceutical component and a waking world uh, tutoring component. Yeah, all seeming to work in tandem just to like rapidly educate you on a topic. Now I wonder in in contradistinction to these two visions we've been talking about about the possibility of learning in your sleep, whether if that were possible, it would interfere with sleep's importance in strengthening and consolidating what you've learned while you were awake. Ah, I like that. And, you know, on one hand, I like it in the sci-fi sense because I don't like the idea of staying at a hotel and the hotel is keeping me from from, from actively processing uh, my memories of the day. But it does fit into a very sci-fi context. Like this company is training you to do some sort of hazardous job. They don't really care. Uh, if you're able to work through your daily anxiety and social stress, they just want you to know how to, uh, you know, tend some sort of, un, you know, underwater power station. Right. <laughs> so I think this is a valid point. To what extent would you be interfering with the purpose of dreams? Now, here's a weird thing. This actually just occurred to me, but I wonder in a kind of sci-fi sense if directed disruption of memory consolidation during sleep phases could actually be used in a pinpointed way to disrupt the consolidation of negative memory. Say you've got somebody who's had a traumatic experience during the day. The next time they go to sleep, I wonder if, you know, okay, so is that night's sleep going to begin consolidating negative memories that are going to form the basis of a post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah. And would it be possible to say, okay, with tonight's sleep, we've got a way to to target the consolidation of that memory and disrupt it to prevent it from taking hold in such a strongly emotional way as it might on its own? I can't help but feel like these possibilities are inevitable uh, because like we say, we're still figuring out the mysteries of sleep. We're still figuring out 
exactly what sleep uh, and, and dream uh, is really all about. Mm-hmm. But once we do, if and when we get there, it seems inevitable that we will find new ways to manipulate it. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, I, I think sleep still holds many mysteries. We, we, even with all the research we've been talking about today, we've just been talking about one avenue, you mm-hmm. know, the role of sleep and dreams in creative problem solving. There's the, all this memory consolidation stuff we didn't really get into in any depth. And then there are other questions as well. I, I think that there are, are deep, deep unsolved mysteries about the role of sleep. And it's a lot of fertile ground for scientific exploration. Yeah, like one idea we didn't even get into here that I think we discussed in our past episode on lucid dreaming is like the question, well, when you lucid dream, are you interfering in the true purpose of dreaming? Yeah. If you were taking control of the wheel, then is that just – does that make a difference? What if dreaming is not recreational or epiphenomenal? What if it's doing something important? Yeah. Yeah. What if you buy a machine or get a prescription in the future that uh, keeps you from having nightmares? Well, it, I can't help but feel in a very kind of like black mirror sci-fi way mm-hmm. that there have to be ramifications for that. Or maybe I'm thinking more mythically. Surely there's, if the gods take something away, they're going to uh, inflict something else on you in return. It's the curse of Zeus. Yeah. It gives you that eternal life but not eternal youth. But eventually eternal sleep. Yeah. So it, it all <laughs> works out. It takes away your nightmares but takes away your soul. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. Um, Sleep, dreaming, learning while we dream. Uh, Obviously, this is a topic that everyone is going to be able to relate to. So we would love to hear from everyone. I know sometimes people say, oh, I don't want to hear about anyone's dreams. Dreams are only interesting to the person who dreamt them. I've never agreed with that. Tell me all about your dreams, even the boring ones. If they're just as boring as mine, then at least I'll feel content. All right. In the, in the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, including the various dream and sleep-related episodes we've recorded over the years, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all those episodes, links out to our various social media accounts. And as always, if you want to support the show, make sure that you rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful, excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you want to get in touch with us to let us know your feedback about this this episode or any other, or to uh, let us know a topic you'd like us to cover in the future, or to just say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show, what you think, uh, what what creative avenues it's taking you down. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.